for a psalm. Psalm 83. And we see more of God's uh, solemn and yet uh, righteous justice today. Uh, our text for this morning is Second uh, Kings 9. There we go. Second Kings 9. Uh, we've made it this far. And uh, we're taking the entire chapter. Uh, let me see, what time is it? I'm not going to read the entire chapter. Uh, hopefully you read ahead. I know a lot of you do. Uh, but we'll just read a, a portion of it, and then, of course, I'll be reading from it and, and summarizing some of it. But uh, since we're not reading it all together this morning, and we've got the potluck and all of this, so I want to keep, keep things going relatively on time. Uh, but I would, would encourage you, uh, just like with Acts, you know, uh, maybe go back and, and read this later today, and maybe you can do so even with uh, with deeper understanding and appreciation. Hopefully, that I'll be able to shed some some light on this and what it uh, even means for all of us. But Second Kings chapter nine, um, I will just read the first thirteen verses. Spare you the gory details at the end. All right, but uh, let's give our attention to the word of God, 2 Kings chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee, do not linger. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, To which of us all? And he said to you, O commander. So he arose and went into the house, and the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish. And I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. When Jehu came out to his servant, the servants of his master, they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to him, you know the fellow in his talk. And they said, that is not true. Tell us now. And he said, thus and so he spoke to me, saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Uh, Let's ask for his help. And then we will consider this passage together. Our heavenly father. Uh, Do give us uh, wisdom and insight, spiritual understanding, so that we can know what it is that you are communicating to us, your people, from this passage of your word. We pray that we will make right application of it, uh, even as we consider solemn coming of, uh, of your judgment. We pray, Father, that, yes, we will tremble at uh, the thought of the judgment that all of us deserve, but that that will cause us to flee for refuge from your judgment to the only one who can provide it. We pray that he will be glorified as we look at this portion of your word today. In his name, Christ's name, we pray. Amen. It seems to be debatable as to whom credit is due uh, for this observation, whether it was Ernest Hemingway or Mark Twain. Uh, But uh, whoever it was first observed that uh, financial disaster happens gradually, then all at once. (laughs) Gradually, then all at once. Uh, I think that fairly accurately describes the disaster, the judgment that comes upon the house of Ahab here in this chapter. 
It's been a long time coming, but when it does come, it comes rapidly. It comes suddenly, all at once. Uh, that, I would argue, is actually the overall impression, sort of the, the main theme of this chapter, the rapidity, the suddenness with which God's judgment falls. There's one relatively rare word, uh, root word at least, that occurs twice in this chapter that hints in this direction. Although, of the half dozen translations that I consulted, the only one that actually translated it in a way where you could draw that connection clearly was the NIV. I don't know if anyone here has an NIV, uh, but if so, you're, you're in luck. Uh, but uh, the NIV was the only one of the ones that I know are common in our, uh, in our church that, that translated this word in the same way to where you could make this connection. But that one word that's, that's relatively rare used twice in this chapter in verses 11 and 20 if you think that you can figure it out, but we'll get there in, in a moment. But gradually, then all at once. Slowly, then suddenly. That is how God's judgment falls. And not just here in this chapter, but also really regularly throughout history. Uh, it's a pattern of how God works. And indeed, this is how the judgment of God will fall fully and finally, on the last day, gradually, then all at once, slowly, then suddenly. That's again, the regular pattern of God's judgment. It's slow, sometimes painfully slow. But when it comes, there is little warning. and There is certainly no escaping. So how do we see that pattern in the judgment that we read of here in 2 Kings 9? Well, that's where we will turn now. And we'll begin with, with an observation that's not explicitly contained in this passage, but that is very much in the background and that we need to remind ourselves of. And that is the merciful slowness of God's judgment. <laughs> the merciful slowness of God's judgment. As I said, the suddenness of God's judgment is really what is the theme of this chapter. So why are we beginning by talking about its slowness? Well, in reality, we have been waiting for this chapter for a long time. Uh, a long time. In a very real sense, we've been waiting for this chapter and the next chapter ever since 1 Kings 16. 1 Kings 16. Some 18 long chapters ago. And we've kind of been averaging one chapter a week. So we've been waiting for this for a long time, even just uh, as a church working our way through this book. But those 18 long chapters also covered a span of history of some 25 years. That's really how long it has been since we've been waiting. And I'm sure many people of the faithful in Israel in this day were waiting for this for a long time as well. What happened back in 1 Kings 16? Well, Ahab and Jezebel come to power, and they force the worship of Baal upon God's people. That's what happened way back in 1 Kings 16. But more directly in the background here is the end of 1 Kings 19. Turn back there. Hopefully you remember this because we looked at it just a couple of weeks ago in the last chapter. But you remember 1 Kings 19. This is in the aftermath of Elijah's confrontation with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. God definitively proves himself to be the one true God. It seems as though the people are going to turn back to him, but they don't. Ahab and Jezebel are still in power. Jezebel threatens Elijah's life and he flees, not out of fear, but out of frustration and discouragement, right? He's not been able to do what he wanted to do, turn the people's hearts back to the one true God. Baalism is still alive and well. And so God brings him into the wilderness, of course, teaches him some lessons to kind of re-encourage him. But one of the things he does is he tells him, he tells Elijah, I have a plan to deal with these wicked rulers. I have a plan to deal with the worship of Baal within my people. And I'm going to do it in my own way, using my own instruments and in my own time. And certainly it's been a long time. But look at what, uh, what God says to Elijah. 
beginning in verse 15. And the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Now, we, of course, immediately see Elisha anointed as prophet uh, to be Elijah's successor. But actually, it wasn't until the last chapter, 2 Kings 8, that we finally met Hazael, who was anointed and, again, is used as an instrument of God's judgment against the Baal worshippers in, in Israel. And now it's here only in 2 Kings 9 that we finally meet the third instrument of God's judgment, Jehu, the son or grandson of, of Nimshi. But that's in the background here. That's what this is. Elisha is finally causing Jehu to be anointed, and we know what God is anointing Jehu to do, to be his instrument of judgment against the the wicked house of Ahab, against Jezebel in particular, and as we'll see moving on into the next chapter, against Baal and the worshippers of Baal within Israel. Doesn't mean that Jehu is a righteous guy. Far from it but he's God's instrument of of judgment. And so that's very much in the background. We'd read of this coming Jehu, who's going to be taking over as king of Israel 25 or however many years ago it was at that point, but 18 chapters ago. And again, we've probably forgotten about him, forgotten his name. And then suddenly uh, chapter nine begins with Elisha causing him finally to be uh, anointed. Now, that's in the background here. Even way back then, the specific instruments of God's judgment were identified by name, and now at long last, we see all of them on the stage. And then, also in the background of this chapter, and probably even more clearly, is the prophecy of judgment announced against Ahab by Elijah back in 1 Kings 21. Uh, Turn back there, 1 Kings 21. Uh, This is the aftermath of Ahab and Jezebel's really murder of Naboth and the seizure of his ancestral vineyard. And after that, God sends, uh, the Lord sends uh, Elijah to confront and condemn Ahab for what he's done. And let's read this, uh, 2 Kings 21, or 1 Kings 21, uh, beginning in verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. Some of those prophecies should sound very familiar. <laughs> the son of the prophets uh, who, who uh, anointed Jehu quotes from this very prophecy about what Jehu will be the instrument of, of judgment to bring against the house of Ahab. But... Even in the very next verse here, we see the merciful slowness of God's judgment. Right? Ahab at least outwardly repents. He mourns. He fasts. He puts on sackcloth. Now again, we know, of course, he was just mourning the consequences of his sin. He wasn't truly repentant over his sin itself. And yet, even that is enough to stir the mercy of God 
or Ahab? He tells Elijah, verse 29, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days. But in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. I mentioned at the time, and I still maintain, that this mercy, this slowness of God to judge Ahab and Jezebel is almost maddening. It really is almost maddening. They are hands down the most wicked king and queen of Israel to date, perhaps ever. They need to be gone, right? Their entire dynasty needs to be wiped out. Ahab, of course, eventually gets his, being shot at random on the battlefield, and dogs do literally lick up his blood as prophesied. But his son succeeds him, and then his other son succeeds him. And all the while, Jezebel lives on, continuing to have great influence over the throne and promoting the poison of Baalism, a poison which has now, as we saw last week, even infected the southern kingdom of Judah through her equally evil daughter, Athaliah. And meanwhile, we wonder, as I'm sure many faithful Israelites in that day wondered, Why? Why is God delaying his judgment? When is this prophesied downfall of the house of Ahab going to come? As many other saints have cried throughout history, how long? How long, O Lord? Why does God frequently delay his judgment? Why is God's judgment often so slow? Well, we know. God tells us it's because he's merciful. It's because he is merciful. We've quoted this passage several times in the study so far, but again, it's because we see this as a pattern of how God works. 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3. You might want to put your thumb or a bookmark in here. We'll be coming back to it. But again, 2 Peter 3. And you know, in the context here, you know, Peter's talking about the coming Final judgment, right? When the the entire cosmos will be judged, not as it was in the the day of, of Noah with water, but with fire, the final, final judgment. And he's telling the people how they ought to live in light of that coming judgment. But what does he say? 2 Peter 3, verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And you can imagine that Ahab's sons, Jezebel herself, thought, yeah, that judgment that God prophesied hasn't happened yet. It's never going to happen. It's been decades, perhaps, at this point. I've got nothing to worry about. Scoffers, (laughs) where is the promise of this coming judgment. But what does Peter say? Verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, (laughs) but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach Repentance. Why is God's judgment often so slow? At least according to our standards. He's <laughs> like, of course, to a God who's outside of time, who, who's from everlasting to everlasting, one day is a thousand years, a thousand years, 25 years is absolutely nothing. He has his own purposes, he has his own timing, he will bring about in his own way. But while it seems slow to us, if it seems slow, why does it seem so slow? Because God is patient. He's long-suffering, even with the most wicked. And he does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's giving all the opportunity for repentance. Even the Ahabs and the Jezebels. Even us. Even you. We all ought to praise God for the merciful slowness of his judgment. But as I said, that's just all in the background. 
So we haven't even gotten into the text yet. <laughs> it's all in the background, but it was, we read this. We read the quotation of these prophecies. We read the, the instrument of God's judgment that had been prophesied so many years before. We remember all of these heinous sins committed by Ahab and Jezebel. And it's been years. It's been chapters. Finally, the judgment is coming. While we see in the background the, the merciful slowness of God's judgment, what we see in this chapter itself is, secondly, the merited suddenness of God's judgment. The merited suddenness of God's judgment. Uh, as we saw last week at the end of chapter 8, everything is arranged for God to bring well-deserved judgment upon both King Joram of Israel and King Ahaziah of Judah. You remember that's how we left off. Joram has been wounded in battle with Hazael, the other instrument of God's judgment. He's been wounded in battle with Hazael of Syria. And Ahaziah goes to visit Joram as he's recovering in Jezreel. Right, Jezreel, the capital was in Samaria. Jezreel seemed to be kind of like a summer palace uh, of sorts for, for Ahab and for his sons and for Jezebel. She's in Jezreel. Uh, but here you have both of these wicked kings, again, in, in both of whose veins runs the blood of Ahab and Jezebel. Remember that. Uh, uh, Joram is Ahab and Jezebel's son, second son. And Ahaziah is their grandson through Athaliah, their daughter. Right? So both of these wicked kings, both of whom actually do represent in some way the house of of Ahab, both of these wicked kings are in the same place at the same time. In other words, judgment can come upon them both in one fell swoop. And so it does, in one fell and sudden swoop. And that's what I said, is, is really the, the, the primary uh, kind of impression you're left with as you read this text. Note the suddenness. Uh, suddenly, with chapter 9, the scene shifts to Elisha. The action begins immediately. Read verses 1 to 3 again. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee, do not linger. Right? This is, this is rapidity. This is suddenness. Right? The first instruction from Elisha here in the first verse is what? Tie up your garment. Right? This is the old King James, gird up your loins. Right? Which meant what? It meant take your, your long cloak, outer garment, uh, and tuck it into your belt. And why do you do that? Because you're going to be running. <laughs> you're going to run. And you don't want to be tripping over this. You, you want to remove every obstacle in your, in your way. You want to get there as fast as you can. So he's saying, as fast as you can, go find Jehu, anoint him. And then the last instruction is what? Then open the door and get out of there. Flee, do not linger. And you're wondering, well, well, why? What's, what's, what's the urgency? What's going on here? But it just adds, it, it starts with this, this uh, idea of, of suddenness. And, it's, uh, and it just continues. This is just what the, 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 the servant of Elisha, the son of the prophet, does. Right? He, he goes, uh, he runs as fast as he can, and he, he gets to Ramoth Gilead. Now, Ramoth Gilead, as we know from verse 28 of chapter 8, is, is where a battle is currently going on between Israel and Syria. Jehu is one of the commanders of the army, and so he's there, engaged in this, in this battle, and uh, at the time, he's having a, a war council with uh, his fellow commanders. And this man bursts into the room, demands to speak with Jehu in private, anoints him king, and then does what Elisha told him to do. He opens the door and he flees. <laughs> Verse 10, exactly what Elisha had told him to do. It's one big whirlwind suddenly seeming out of nowhere anoints him king tells him you're going to bring god's judgments that he already prophesied against ahab and against jezebel goodbye 
he goes. Uh, sudden, seemingly out of nowhere. And then the suddenness continues. Jehu comes back to his fellow commanders, uh, significantly referred to in verse 11 as the servants of his master, whom he's about to kill. <laughs> We're just kind of reminded who he is. Uh, but they ask him, what was that all about? Right? What do they say? Is all well? Uh, it's actually a question you read several times in this passage. Is it peace? You know, is everything okay? And then they ask what? Why did this mad fellow come to you? Why did this mad fellow come to you? Right? Because he seemed mad, right? He bursts in, demands to speak. He's in there for a couple of minutes and then he just flees. He doesn't say, how do you do? Goodbye. He's just gone, uh, right? The rapidity, the suddenness with which he appears and disappears gives the impression of a, of a madman, right? Uh, that's actually the word that I told you to, to look out for. That's the word of the day. Mad, <laughs> crazy, raving. But it's in reference, again, here to the suddenness and swiftness of his appearance and his disappearance. Uh, it's interesting, Jehu tries to brush it off at first. Oh, you know that guy. And they said, no, obviously something happened. And so he finally tells them the Lord has anointed him king. Now, Right? A, a madman rushes into their council, does this, runs off, and Jehu says, oh, that guy just anointed me king. How, how would you react to something like that as one of these other commanders? How would you expect these guys to react? Right? This is big news. We're talking a coup, treason, usurpation. Are they going to have to think it over for a while? Debate the idea, weigh the consequences. No, again, things just happen suddenly in this chapter. Verse 13, Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Now, maybe they didn't like Joram very much. Probably not. He wasn't a great guy. But just the immediacy, the suddenness of all of this is, is incredible. And it doesn't end there. Uh, the conspiracy then also moves forward rapidly. Jehu tells the commanders not to let anyone out of Ramoth Gilead, out of the city where they are, because he doesn't want anyone to, uh, to, to get out and go to Jezreel and warn Joram and Jezebel uh, that a coup is happening and that, uh, and that Jehu is coming. Uh, Jehu uh, sets out immediately, right? Immediately to attack uh, Jezreel without warning, right? He doesn't want there to be warning. Everything is the element of surprise. It's suddenness. Uh, the rapid approach of his, his company, his chariots, is noticed by the watchmen in Jezreel. And the watchmen assume that it must indicate something of importance has occurred, right? You can see the, the rapidity with which they're approaching Jezreel. Maybe it's good news, maybe they've won the battle, maybe it's bad news, they've lost the battle, but it's got to be something, it's got to be something urgent. And so Joram sends out a couple of messengers before they can even reach Jezreel, but both of those messengers on horseback meet, uh, meet uh, Jehu, ask, is all, is all well, is it peace, you know, what's going on? And he says, why do you talk of peace? Uh, turn around and ride behind me. And both of the messengers do it. They join his company, right? Just immediately. Uh, not, a, not a question. And so when neither of his messengers get back to him, Joram realizes that something is up. And so Joram and Ahaziah, so the king of Israel and the king of Judah, who's there visiting him, foolishly go out to meet Jehu. Jehu then reveals his intentions. Joram and Ahaziah try to flee but Jehu's arrows find them both, directed, of course, by the sovereign hand of God. Similar sudden judgment will fall upon Jezebel later that very day. In fact, it is possible that all of this happened in the same day. That's kind of the impression that the text gives you, that uh, the anointing of Jehu his being proclaimed king, his riding to Jezreel and taking out Joram and Ahaziah and Jezebel and becoming king all happens in one day. Suddenness, swiftness, rapidity. That's what you get from this text. Oh, and I forgot to, to point out uh, our word of the day appeared also in verse 20. 
Again, the watchman reported he reached them, the messenger, but he's not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives, as the NIV puts it, like a madman. <laughs> like a madman. Right again, talking about the, the, the suddenness, the rapidity, like a madman. Right? It's, it's mad. The, the word of God's judgment came to Jehu in a mad rush. And now the instrument of God's judgment descends upon the house of Ahab in a mad rush. <laughs> right? Madness. Suddenness. Now, as we said, this judgment was at least decades overdue. It seemed so slow in the coming. But when it came, it came suddenly. It came in a mad rush. And that is how God's judgment tends to come. In his mercy, he warns, he gives generous time to repent. But if one abuses his patience and refuses to repent, when his judgment comes, it comes swiftly. Suddenly, in a mad rush, without warning, with no possibility of escape. Or to use the common expression of the New Testament, it comes like a thief in the night. Like a thief in the night. Yes, in the last days, mockers will deny the coming judgment because it's been so slow in coming. It's been 2,000 years. You think that judgment is still coming? No, everything's going to keep going the way it always has been. It's slow. But come it will, and suddenly. Look back at, uh, at 2 Peter 3 again. 2 Peter 3. Yes, it seems slow to some, but it's because he's patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the, heavenly, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It will come like a thief without warning when you least expect it, when you are least prepared for it, when you feel most secure in your sin and in your pride as Joram and Jezebel felt in Jezreel will come like a thief, a thief in the night, and it will come like a mad thief in the night. Come unexpectedly, and what's going to happen? The heavens pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies burn up and dissolve, the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. The clear implication, and I think what we should take away from the suddenness of this descent of judgment upon the house of Ahab here, is to repent, and to repent now. But that call to repentance, uh, to give up your rebellion against the heavenly king, against the one true God, it's urgent. You need to repent now, immediately, because you have no idea when that judgment is coming. It could come at any moment, like a thief in the night, like a madman who bursts into, into a, a room of counsel, Repent and repent now before it is eternally too late. But as I worded this point, yes, the, the suddenness of this judgment is highlighted. But also what's highlighted here is that the suddenness of this judgment is fully merited. It's fully deserved. Right? I, I think we have the tendency sometimes, even you know, with those who deserve judgment, sometimes to read and almost feel a little bit sorry for those people. Oh, they didn't have any warning. Well, that's not true. They had decades of warning that this judgment was coming. God mercifully, patiently was slow in that judgment. They weren't going to repent. So the suddenness of this judgment was fully merited, fully deserved. We shouldn't feel the least bit sorry for these wicked kings or for Jezebel. They didn't deserve another warning. Again, they had had years of warning, plenty of time to repent. And as we see, I think one of the details we're given, especially about Jezebel, this shows, no, she was never, never going to repent, even if she'd had more time. But their time was now up. God is patient. 
but his patience is not limitless. It will come to an end. But it's, it's interesting to see which of Ahab's and especially Jezebel's sins are called out as the reason for this sudden judgment. Uh, I think it is instructive. Uh, you might think that it's for their promotion of the worship of Baal. Right? That's how they're introduced. It's really the sin that sets them apart from all of the other wicked kings of, of Israel. Their promotion of, of Baal worship. But Baal is actually never mentioned in this chapter. And the worship of Baal that they introduced and forced upon the people of God, he's not, at least not directly. Now, I would say he's probably alluded to in verse 22. When Joram saw Jehu, he said, is it peace, Jehu? He answered, what peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? <coughs> uh, she probably was involved in occult practices in the worship of Baal, as most of the, the worship of false deities always descends into. So sorceries here is probably not an exaggeration. But the whorings, now I get the impression she probably wasn't the most faithful of wives, uh, but whorings here, and especially if you see some of the parallels in, in uh, Chronicles, refers to idolatry and refers to that worship of Baal. But that's the only thing mentioned. The actual sin, the real focus of this chapter, the reason for this judgment, the specific sin that merited it, is given, again, back in the words of the son of the prophet to Jehu in verse 7. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. I mean, no, this absolutely was the case, especially at the, uh, the, the kind of the impetus with the impetus of, of Jezebel. Yes, the prophets of the Lord had been slaughtered en masse. Apparently here too, other just faithful Israelites had been, had been killed. And we know of that. We've read of that already. And that is really the sin that is called out by, by God here. Uh, the blood of righteous Naboth and his sons is also singled out in verse 26. Uh, as surely as I saw yesterday, the blood of, well, let me pick up in verse uh, 25. <clears throat> Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, take him up. This is after he kills Joram. Take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab, his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. That means that Jehu was with Ahab and heard the prophecy of Elijah uh, in the aftermath of Naboth's killing in person. He had heard it, and now he's the one bringing it to pass. And he does so in a poetic way. He throws his body on that they happen to be right there on Naboth's vineyard. And so he says, well, throw, throw him on Naboth's vineyard. Again, let him, let him rot. Don't bury him. It's, it's the sign of a, a, a cursed death, right? And it's what, uh, what God had prophesied. The ones that die in the city are going to be eaten by the dogs. The ones that die in the, in the open country will be eaten by wild animals and by the birds. And so he, he's fulfilling this. Cast him out. But he says, uh, this is the pronouncement. Verse 26, as surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons. That's new information. But it makes sense, right? The, the point was to claim the inheritance. You can't have those loose ends of sons claiming that now they should, should inherit it. Declares the, so surely as I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. What is the specific sin for which this sudden judgment is falling upon the house of Ahab and, and Jezebel? It's their persecution and murder of God's people, and particularly of his prophets. Again, Jezebel had not just introduced Baal worship and then thought, well, okay, you can keep worshiping Yahweh, but you know, let's also worship Baal. No, it wanted to wipe out the worship of the one true God and completely replace it with the worship of Baal. Yes, God is jealous for his own worship, but he is also particularly zealous 
when it comes to avenging the suffering and the martyrdom of his people. He's particularly zealous when it comes to avenging the sufferings and the martyrdom of his people. It's, it's striking how often when I, when I was reading this passage over the past few weeks, how many times my mind went to another book of the Bible. I'm curious if anyone else <laughs> thinks of it a lot. Book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. And how often there, we went through Revelation not too long ago, how often when God is pouring out his final full judgment on the world, yes, it's, it's because of you know, their, their false worship of the beast, but regularly, what is he saying you're being judged for? The blood of the saints, the blood of my servants, very frequently also the blood of my prophets. That is, is why judgment comes upon the world. Uh, turn, to, turn to Revelation quick. Let's, let's just look at a few of these passages. I'll, I'll summarize some of the stuff coming up. But this is, this is so important, and I think this is, we, we need to take this away with us. Uh, Revelation 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood? on those who dwell on the earth. And they're given a white robe, told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Or flip over to chapter 16. We could look at so many of these, but 16, verse five. And I heard the angel in charge of the water saying, well, verse four, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water saying, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Or especially you see this concentration of the, the emphasis of the blood of the saints in the judgment of Babylon, who is depicted how? As the great prostitute, who in many ways is depicted very much like a painted Jezebel, full of whoredom and sorcery. Those are words that are used of her, who is drunk on the blood of the saints and whose judgment, when it finally happens, is celebrated in heaven. Look at chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. It's interesting that at the beginning of, uh, of Revelation and the letters to the churches, there is a false prophetess in one of the churches leading the people astray to worship other gods who's actually called Jezebel. <laughs> Jezebel. That's what God is, is judging here. God is jealous to avenge the sufferings and especially the martyrdoms of his people. And I'm sure as we see heaven rejoicing here at the fall of the great prostitute, I'm sure many of the righteous in Israel similarly rejoiced at the news of Jezebel's demise, her literal fall. Ding dong, the witch is dead. Fallen, fallen is Jezebel, who was drunk on the blood of God's servants. This is the real reason that's highlighted for this judgment. It's the blood of God's servants. And why are we told this? And why is this emphasized? Not just here, but in Revelation, in other scriptures. It's a, it's a reminder to God's people that he notes and he remembers the sufferings of his people that they endure for his sake. And it's an assurance that he will avenge those sufferings. And this is actually held out to us as a cause of rejoicing. As a, and as a, an encouragement and a comfort 
to us in our sufferings, an encouragement to us to persevere, right? Yes, God will, will avenge. And yes, we pray even for those who persecute us and we long that the way that their, our sufferings at their hands will be avenged is that they trust in Jesus Christ to have taken the judgment for that in their place already. But it is given to us as a comfort and encouragement, a, a reason for endurance in our sufferings to know God notes our sufferings. He remembers them. He will avenge them, even as he did the blood of his prophets and his servants with Elijah. And I, I think we need to note again, while it might, again, be tempted to feel a little bit sorry for Jezebel, but I, we, we get the description of her final death and judgment. It's, it's gory, and go read through it. It's, it's uh, one of the most uh, shameful <laughs> deaths ever recorded in Scripture. Um, but, I, but I love the detail, again, that we are given in verse 30. When Jehu came to Jeze- Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. Jehu entered the gate, she said, is it peace, you Zimri murderer of your master? Now, why are we told this? Again, some people think, oh, she's trying to seduce him and save her life. She calls him the murderer of his master. She's not trying to make make friendly with the guy. Why does she do it? It just, it shows, I think, a couple of things. It, it, it serves as such a poetic contrast with the gruesome end that she's about to suffer. Right, The very face that she paints, the head that she adorns. When they go down to get her body a couple hours later, all they find is her skull (laughs) because the dogs have eaten it. Well, in the palms of her hands and her feet, the dogs have eaten everything else and and run off. Fulfillment, direct fulfillment of, of the prophecy of God's coming judgment. But it also, I think, just shows her brazen defiance to the very end. She knows... Judgment is coming. She sees it approaching and she puts on makeup and mocks the instrument of God's judgment who's coming against her. It just shows, I'm sure I'm going to be eaten by dogs, but I'm going to look my best beforehand. Uh, Shows her brazen defiance. And again, as with all believers, no one who ever suffers this, the judgment of God on the last day would have repented if they'd just been given another chance, a little bit more time. Now, all unbelievers, even when they see that judgment approaching, it won't break their hearts and lead them to repentance. It'll harden their hearts, and they will try to, to meet God's judgment with brazen defiance. This, again, it shows... This suddenness of this judgment was fully, fully merited. There would be no repentance. And what is it for? It's for the blood of God's servants. I know I do this a lot. I'm just going to mention briefly my last point. (laughs) It's one that kind of speaks for itself. But I wanted to emphasize, you know, what we've seen so far, the, the merciful slowness of God's judgment, but also the, mati- the, uh, the, uh, the merited suddenness of God's judgment. Thirdly, and I can't bypass it, just uh, the meticulous specificity of God's judgment. The meticulous specificity of God's judgment. Again, both with the death of, of Joram on the very plot of land that his father had murdered Naboth to take from him. And, and that judgment had been spoken. It's on that exact same plot that that judgment finally comes to pass. Again, it's just not, no mistaking it. It's the judgment of God. And then, again, the, the exact fulfillment of the judgment of Jezebel and how in Jezreel, that specific place, she is eaten by, by dogs. Literal, meticulous specificity of God's judgment. And that is how God's judgment comes. Again, it's slow, mercifully. When it comes, it comes with a suddenness that is fully merited and it's meticulous in its specificity, right? We see many ways in which the final judgment is described. Some of those ways we know are metaphorical, uh, but some of them aren't as metaphorical. You see it described as unquenchable flame, weeping and gnashing of, of teeth, 
where uh, the, the flame is not quenched and the worm never dies. It's described as a lake of fire, as a place of eternal conscious torment. It's described again to, to refer to Revelation. This is one of, I think, the least metaphorical descriptions in Revelation 14. Uh, those who worship the beast and ally with him will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. You think the judgment that fell upon Jezebel was gruesome? Again, it's just a faint shadow of the judgment that is to come. It is fully deserved, fully merited. If anything, these descriptions of the final judgment, they're not hyperbole. If anything, they're understatement because we cannot even conceive, let alone express what it is to suffer the infinite wrath of a perfectly holy God against his rebellious creatures. Which again, simply highlights the urgency of the call to repentance. Right? We've seen the, the merciful slowness of God's judgment. We've seen its merited suddenness when it does come, as it could come literally at any moment. We need to repent. Praise God, that judgment has not yet come. God's patience is still continuing for however long it will, which means we have the opportunity to repent. And God has given a way to escape his judgment, the judgment we all deserve. Yes, we might not be as obviously wicked as a Jezebel, but all of us have, are guilty of idolatry, guilty of that same rebellion against God, broken his law, fully merited his judgment. God in his mercy not only delays that judgment, but he has a way, made a way to escape that judgment forever. And it is in the person and the work of Jesus Christ that we are about to remember. And so as a final, perhaps bonus point, we see the merciful and yet merited satisfaction of God's judgment on our behalf. It's merciful because we are spared the judgment we deserve, but it's merited because Christ fully suffered that judgment for all who trust in him, in his sufferings and in his death on the cross. Let us repent of our sins. Let us trust in what Christ has done. Flee to him as the only hope of escape and shelter from that judgment to come. Praise God, though. He has offered that full satisfaction on our behalf. Let's remember him as we go to the supper now. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for, again, a sobering passage, sobering reminders and, and glimpses into the judgment that is to come, the judgment that we all deserve. But now, let us, by faith in Christ, as we remember his sacrifice, find comfort, find hope. Father, uh, we thank you. Not only has your judgment been delayed, but if we trust in, in Christ, it has already passed for us because he has taken it in our place. Help us to partake in faith and in love and in gratitude and in worship now. We pray in his name. Amen.